The title of the message this morning is All for a Purpose. All for a Purpose. This morning, where we're going to be geographically, is with the apostles in a town called Lystra. It's about 20 miles south and a little bit east of Iconium, where we were two weeks ago. And in Iconium, we, we remember the disciples, they had gone there, preached, and then they were able to dig in, stayed for, the text told us, a long time, and were trying to really develop and make these great disciples there until... The hostility grew to the point that they were going to attempt to kill Paul and Barnabas, and the Lord said, okay, you know, here's not the place for you to die, though they were, they were very willing to give everything in that way for the cause of Christ. And so he led them on, and, and we find them in this town of Lystra. We'll pick up in Acts chapter 14, verse 8 this morning. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. Now, we've been in the book of Acts for, for quite a while, and this is kind of our second series in the book of, of Acts. We did another series uh, almost three years ago, I guess now, where we were walking through the front of Acts, first eight chapters of that. But if you're familiar with the book of Acts, this event might be kind of triggering a memory in your mind, like something seems familiar about what we just read. And that, that connection there is, there's a very strong parallel here to something that took place in Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. If you remember, or you flip back a few pages, you'll see in Acts chapter 3, two other apostles, Peter and John, this is right after the day of Pentecost, they're in Jerusalem, and they go to the temple to pray, and there they encounter a man who's described in pretty much this exact same way. He was a man who was crippled from birth and had never Walked, And that man who is there at the temple gate, he's, he's begging, he's asking for money to be given to him so he can get some food, you know, and be taken care of in that way. He gets the attention of Peter and John, and Peter looks at him, and, and if you remember the text in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, he tells him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Right? It's an amazing uh, testimony to the power of God, the authority of Jesus Christ there at the temple gates. God heals that man. He jumps up the same way it's described here. He jumps up. He begins jumping and shouting and praising God and gathers this huge crowd of people who are like, hey, we know that guy. That guy can't walk. And here he is running, jumping all around. And so what Peter and John do is they use that opportunity, this crowd forming to see what's happened, to begin to preach and share the gospel of Jesus, right? Well, here in Acts 14, it's actually kind of a little bit of the opposite situation in terms of how things come about. The, the crowd's already gathered to hear the preaching, right? Paul and, and Barnabas are there, and Paul's already begun speaking to everyone. He's already telling them about Jesus, and while he's doing that, he's looking out into the crowd, you know, the way preachers we, we do sometimes. He's gauging their reaction. Sometimes that's encouraging, sometimes not so much. But, you know, it's what he's doing. He's looking around. He's looking at the faces of the people listening to him, and he sees there's this man. And he sees this man is tracking. He's believing the message. Paul's no doubt talking about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, how he has authority. He's the true living God, right? He's the one who's done incredible things that Paul's already seen. And he sees this man believes. This man believes so much that this man believes if Jesus is who this preacher says Jesus is, then Jesus could radically change my life by healing me right now. 
And Paul sees this man has that kind of faith. And so, led by the Spirit, no doubt, because in the middle of his preaching, Paul sees this man, sees the faith he has, and publicly in front of everyone says, rise up and be healed. And God heals him. It's just absolutely incredible. God does the miracle, as Paul says right there in the middle of the sermon, this man is healed. He gets up in front of everybody. Now, as I've said many times before, when we see miraculous events like this in the scripture, we see these healings take place. We see these powerful encounters with spirits and demonic forces. We need to be clear on why it is that God is doing what he's doing in those moments. Because God clearly has great power to do things like that, right? I mean, you, you, you can't read the Bible and accept it as true and not accept the fact that God has power over all things. He can eradicate any illness. He could heal any infirmity. He can overcome any problem. He is more powerful, stronger than any force that exists. The issue is not, if you look at the God of the Bible, does this God have power over whatever situation you want to put into the phrase, Clearly he does. He's the creator of all things, right? But as we often see him doing these things in the Gospels or in the book of Acts through the apostles, we have to understand this reality. See, the reality is God doesn't always heal everyone, right? Or supernaturally, miraculously resolve every situation that's faced. Even here in this account, we get God healing a man in an incredible way but if we're thinking about there's a crowd gathered and listening to, to Paul there, the reality is surely this man was not the only one who had an infirmity, who was sick there that day, right? But as far as we know from the text, he's the only one who receives this miraculous healing from God. So the question is why? Why would God choose to bring healing to this one man in this exact moment? And I'm convinced the answer lies in this, what I've said to you many times before. The way to understand God's power, God working in these great miraculous ways, is to always look for the connection to the greater plan that God has, the ultimate purposes, his mission that he has committed himself explicitly to seeing fulfilled. If I could put it Fairly succinctly, and, and I say that because Malia always, it never fails if I ask her for feedback. She will always tell me my points need to be shorter. So this is me trying to be as succinct and short as I can put the point like this. Here's how I would say it. God is most concerned about what's going on inside, meaning in our hearts and our souls, rather than the outside, in our bodies and our circumstances. I think that's pretty good. I don't feel like I can trim that down too much more because what I'm not saying is that God's only concerned with the inside, that he doesn't care about the outside stuff. He certainly does, right? He does care about our bodies. He does care about our circumstances. He does care about our physical needs, our problems. But what God cares about most is the heart, is the soul of you and I and the people around us. And he knows that those things, the inside things, are far more important than the outside things, even though we fail to understand that sometimes. In fact, we fail to understand that most of the time, right? Because the thing that keeps us up, the thing that hurts the most, the things that we think about the most, we focus on the most, we dwell on, we get anxious about the most, they're all outside things, right? They're all physical things. But what I need us to grasp this morning is this. It's not unloving, it's not uncaring, it's certainly not because he doesn't have power over all things. He does. God just has a much bigger view than we do. 
That's why God chooses to bring healing to certain people in certain moments and not others in, in other moments. Because God sees everything. He sees our entire existence from the moment of our conception to the end of our earthly lives. But not just that. He sees eternity, this eternal existence that you and I were made for as well. He sees all of that. He's got this massive view that you and I, we don't have. And in the big picture that God has of you, your existence, of me, my existence, and where all this is going is that God knows that you and I, if we deal with a physical issue, if we have health challenges, if we have to learn in this life how to be persistent in praying for the same thing over and over and over and over again instead of getting an immediate answer, if we have to walk through really difficult paths, if we have to face struggles in this life, that all those things are working together in this period of our lives to produce an eternal result that is far greater than what we will face here. Far greater than what you and I can possibly imagine as finite beings. It may sound kind of abstract, but I want you to get this today. It's what the Bible clearly and repeatedly teaches us is true, that God has this big view, this big plan, and sees everything that's going on, cares about everything that's going on here, but isn't just limited to this section of our existence. He sees eternity as well. And he knows how what we face here, what we endure here, what we go through here, what it will produce in the ages to come. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5 tell us, For we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us, right? Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings, which is not natural, is not what we want to do when we're suffering, right? But this is what a Christian person can do. Why? Because our sufferings produce better results in this life, yes, but certainly into eternity. James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4 says, So count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, where the apostle there writes, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who are by God's power being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes even though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Bible is telling us over and over and over again, these passages, and, and I could pull those three out and put three more in their spot and do that several times over. What the Bible is saying is, listen, this life will have challenges. This life will have moments that are really, really difficult. 
things that we naturally want to escape or avoid or have removed from us. And yet what the Bible's telling us is all those things are working together to produce something greater, something eternal in us. And God knows that and cares enough about us that he would bring us through those things so that he can produce those things in us for eternity. One of the most profound statements, I think, comes from Paul in 2 Corinthians on this topic. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, Paul writes, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. And every single time I think of this verse or I read it through the Bible, I come and I think, this life doesn't feel light or momentary when we're facing afflictions, right? There is so much in this life that's really, it's heavy. We feel it as heavy. It's heavy when we face cancer. It's heavy when we have a loved one die. It's heavy when there's a diagnosis given to us that you have an illness that has no cure or you're going to deal with chronic pain for the rest of your life or this problem that you are facing is going to keep coming back over and over and over again. That's heavy for us to bear. It's heavy for us to carry around the burden of not only knowing our mistakes and having regrets and recognizing our failures from the past and the dashed hopes that we had because of things we did wrong, right? And the reality that we face is life's not like a video game where we go, oh, this didn't play out like I wanted. Let me just roll it back to the last checkpoint and try again. Right? That's heavy to know there are consequences to everything that we do in this life. And it's heavy for us to know that everyone who knows our mistakes and knows the things of our past, they're going to continue to know that. We can't erase it. Right? It's heavy in this life when we face challenges related to not having enough food, not having enough money, to have broken relationships in our past, to have been hurt emotionally or abused even emotionally or physically by other people, that's heavy stuff to carry. It's heavy to be hated by people, to be despised, to be mocked, for people to wish that you were dead or at the very least just gone from their lives entirely. It's heavy when we have to deal with people trying to influence other people to share in their disdain for you, trying to ruin your reputation in the place you live and the people you interact with. Those are heavy experiences, aren't they? And many of those challenges, like I said, they last a long, long time. Paul says they're momentary. They don't feel momentarily. The effects of sickness and illness and physical infirmity, those things can last years. They can be decades, even entire lifetimes. The guilt, the shame, the memory of our past, maybe some of those things fade a little bit, but rarely are they ever truly forgotten, right? They can follow us for decades and decades upon end. And the impacts of poverty or food insecurity, broken relationships, abuse, those things last lifetimes. They shape us in ways that, that often we don't discover until decades into the future. And the toll that comes upon a person when they're despised and hated by others, that goes a lot deeper for a lot longer than we consciously understand, right? So how can Paul say that our lives are just light, momentary afflictions? Our experience says it doesn't feel that way, Paul. 
So is it just Paul had a better, a better hand? <laughs> his life was, was something that you and I don't experience. He, he was living the gold standard, his best life now. That's not the case at all, is it? If you know Paul's story, you know it wasn't a life of ease and comfort. He suffered a lot more in many of these areas than you and I will ever suffer, right? I mean, he was deeply acquainted with the heaviness, the lengthiness, the pain of this broken world. We've seen instances of some of the suffering Paul's already endured in just this first missionary journey. And spoiler alert, there's two more to come (laughs) and a lot more suffering for him to come. He doesn't live a light, easy, oh, everything is so great type of existence. It's heavy for Paul and it's lengthy for Paul. But Paul says what he says here because he's looking at life not from the vantage point of what he's facing in a moment or looking back on what's already gone. He's looking ahead to eternity and saying in light of that, in light of the eternal realities, everything I'm in the middle of, everything I've gone through, everything I will face in these years that I have left on this earth, they are light, they are momentary. Because eternity has a weight of glory to it beyond all comparison. So I feel this this tension of sitting right in the middle of a narrative here. (laughs) We read the first few verses of the story, and there's more to to the story. It doesn't end there. And there's other responses, other applications we need to draw out. But yesterday, as I was thinking about this morning and trying to to wrap up these things and finish these things and write things down, I just felt compelled for us to linger right here in the middle of the narrative and unpack this a little bit more. In the last three weeks, we've, we've faced some of the horrible realities of sickness and death in our own church family, very close to us, right? On Wednesday, I was standing in this very pulpit for the funeral. Well, the body was, was just feet in front of me here. And there was genuine and proper, as we talked about, sadness and tears and mourning and grief because of that. And yet, there's also hope. There's strength and encouragement because, like we talked about, the reality is there's eternity to come. And the power and the promise of God is that a far greater eternal life is coming for those who trust in him, as Randy did. So we mourned and we cried and we wept, and yet we celebrate because now he's experiencing this weight of glory beyond compare. And... And so as we're just a, a few days you know, past these events, I, what I want to do this morning is, is I just I feel burdened by the Lord to just plead with us, our hearts and our minds again today, let's not waste any of this precious time that we have here now. Because it matters not just for this life, but, but for eternity, the text is telling us, right? What we do now has an impact on us in eternity. And so when we're in good moments and our health is strong and we don't have any pain we're dealing with at the moment, there's no conflict in our life per se, we're, we're happy and we're satisfied and things are, they feel like they're going our way. Don't waste those moments. They're precious. Don't waste them by saying, I'm just going to sit back and enjoy I'm just going to reap the benefits. I'm just going to feel good. No, look to God. Ask him, what are you teaching me? What are you giving me these moments to prepare for? What are you trying to build in me? What are you trying to get me ready for in the future? And on the other side of it, when we're in those moments of grief, and we're just, we're just trying to come up for breath, it feels like sometimes, and we're dealing with 
pain. And this life, just living, it's really a struggle sometimes because, because, man, we feel the bondage to sin that this world is in. Don't just long for relief and escape in the hard moments. I get it. I, I feel that longing too, but we can't just, just have that longing. We have to learn to look upwards to God and say, what are you teaching me through these moments? Because if you've led me here, if you've brought me to this moment, there's, a, there's something here you want to do in me to produce an eternal result. So Lord, yes, I want out. It's hard. It's difficult. I want relief. But more than that, Lord, I want to learn the lesson you have for me in this moment. I'm, I'm just, I'm struck that this one guy here in Acts 14, here in Lystra, right, he gets healed incredibly blessed for him. His life is immediately observably transformed in a moment, but what I can't get past is all the other people who are implied in the text, all the other people who don't get a healing, don't get a miracle in that moment. One guy did, which is incredible, but not everybody who is listening saw some miraculous thing that day. So the question that I'm just thinking through and mulling over and wanting to press in on us is this. What about those of us who are trusting God, who have faith in God, who believe in him, who are longing to see God do incredible supernatural things like this guy did, yet God's plan, God's providence is not to bring healing to us, is not to give us some supernatural sign, is not to just take us out of whatever circumstance of difficulty, of trial, of hardship that we're in and just miraculously resolve it all for us. What about us? whose plan, according to God's providence, is to walk through something. One of the people that I've thought of that's a, such a beautiful illustration of how we should live and how we should recognize this and an encouragement to us that it is possible to learn to live this way is a, a woman named Joni Erickson Tata. How many of you are familiar with that name or her story? Okay, just a couple. Let me tell you, just high-level her, her story real quick. In the year 1967, Joni was a 17-year-old young woman. She was athletic. She had just graduated high school a few weeks before. She was preparing to head off to college. And her sister invited her to go with her that summer out to the beach for a day of fun and swimming together. And she was a strong, athletic girl, so they kind of jump off the, the dock, and she just, she just swims out to this pier that's kind of sitting out there, this wood raft that's floating, and she's up there, and they're talking and having fun. And she takes a dive from this raft, but doesn't realize how shallow the water is where they are. And so as she dives off with this dive, she immediately hits the bottom of the lake, and her neck snaps backwards, and crushes her fourth cervical vertebrae and severs her spinal cord. She is instantly paralyzed in the water, and she's laying there face down, beginning to, to drown. Everything should be over, but her sister, providentially, a crab had bitten her foot, and so she turns to tell her sister, hey, watch out for crab. She didn't even know she had jumped off, and she sees her sister's body floating there. She was able to get her and turn her over and pull her out of the water, saves her life. They get her to the hospital, and she knows, I can't feel anything, I can't move anything. And the doctors start to do the examination, and they say, you are going to live the rest of your life as a quadriplegic. There's nothing we can do. The spinal cord, it's severed, there's no repair, there's nothing, there's no surgeries, anything. This is going to be your reality the rest of your life. And Joni was a Christian. 
She had come to faith a few years before as a 14-year-old girl. She had been kind of struggling through high school to live really in uh, fully committed to the Lord. But, but just a few weeks before this incident, the very end of her high school career, she said, Lord, I'm going to go to college, and I, I just want to be on fire for you. Rededicated her life, was really, really serious about her faith. And yet, these events took place just a few days later. And the diagnosis was right and accurate. It wasn't, it wasn't a misread MRI. It wasn't anything like that. It was exactly what was true. And Joni struggled because she believed in a God who could heal. A God who made people walk again in just a moment, like what we saw in the Bible here. He just says, rise up and walk, and the guy can. And yet, as Joni prayed for that, Lord, heal me in that way, he didn't answer that way. So it was a heavy weight on this young woman. She is laying there, trying to reconcile that she has prayed, she has asked God, she believes he can, and yet he is not. And the rest of her life will be lived as a quadriplegic. And so she begins to struggle with that deeply. She begins to get depressed. She begins to think, is, is this life even worth living if this is going to be my reality? I can't do anything for myself. I can't move anything. I can, I can move my head and I can talk. And she wondered, how did it come to this? Why did this happen? All those questions that you and I, we would ask too. And some Christian friends come to visit her in those first few weeks. And they share scriptures, as Christians often do when we visit people in this situation. One of the scriptures they read was Jeremiah 29, 11. You know the verse, right? It's, it's a coffee cup verse. It's, a, it's on t-shirts. It's on a poster. Maybe, maybe it's hanging up in your house on some decoration. Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And Joni heard that voice, that verse, read, read to her, and she had the same honesty. If you're, if you're real, in the, in the darkest moments, the deepest moments of your struggle, of your pain, you hear that verse read to you, and you will think at some level, some part of your mind, some part of your heart will question it like Joni did. And she just says, she thought, how in the world can that be true? I am hurting. I am literally harmed. God, how is quadriplegia not me being harmed? That's ridiculous to say. I can't believe that verse. Maybe you've thought those same things. It's easy to love Jeremiah 29 11 when things are going pretty good, right? When it went into pick me up for what we think is coming down in the future, it's very different to take that verse and go, I believe this, I'm going to trust this when I don't see a way out, when there's, when there's no hope that I can cling to outside of these words. But the Holy Spirit was at work through the word in Joni's life. And he led her to really press in on that text. She couldn't shake it. She couldn't move past it. So she wanted to understand what is really being said here. And she began to study the context of where this verse comes in the Bible. In Jeremiah 29, 11, it is certainly God speaking. And it is certainly God giving a big promise there. But when we look at who God is talking to and everything that he is saying to them in that passage, the deeper meaning, the true meaning of these verses come out powerfully. If you're familiar with what's taking place there, in that text you find God is speaking to the Israelite people as they are being carried off by the Babylonians into exile. In exile that God is sending them into because of their rebellion and sin. He's not going to deliver them from it. He's not going to, to suddenly rise up an army. There's no guerrilla strike force ready to liberate them as they get ready to go. He is going to send them into an exile. And God makes it clear this exile, this punishment will last for 70 years. 
And you have to understand, at this point in world history, we are way past the long lifespans of the patriarchs, right? You read in the beginning of the Bible, this guy lived hundreds of years, and hundreds of years you're thinking, okay, so 70 years, that's not a big deal. At this point in history, lifespan is actually much, much less than what we have today. You're, you, most scholars believe people live between 35 and 40 years at the most at this point in world history. Something's going to take you out. Sickness, disease, war. Like they, they don't have modern medicine. They don't have sanitary things. People are dying very young. So what that means then is that this generation of people being sent off into exile, the generation of adults that are going, they're going to go die in exile. The children that they have, either they take with them or they have when they get there into exile, they're going to spend their entire lives in exile as slaves, and they will die in that state. And it will be their grandkids who may, they'll grow up as slaves knowing that, who may at the end of their lifetimes, if they're lucky, if they live towards the upper end of that limit, they may get to experience freedom. But you're talking about generations of people who will go into exile, live as slaves, and die that way. And yet, God declares, as they're going, as they have this timeline set before them, he's actually not harming them with this. He's actually working out a plan for good and not evil, something that will give them a future and a hope. (laughs) How is that the case? That's the case because God knows that these circumstances will actually produce eternal goods that far outweigh the temporary difficulties. As Joni says, God suddenly opened her eyes to see this when she understood the context of the verse. She writes, When I understood that verse, I began to understand that God's plan for a hopeful future for me was not necessarily jumping up, dancing, kicking, doing aerobics, walking, getting back the use of my arms and legs. No, God's plans for me go far deeper, a deeper healing, a healing of my soul. As I heard her say those words in this video clip that I was watching, it was so brought tears to my eyes, so powerfully expressing this understanding of what we're talking about. God is working in far deeper, far more important ways, far more serious ways on the inside of a person than the physical things that surround a person. He's going after our souls. He is interested in our hearts, in our affections, in our character, in what we love and where we place that love. He's so committed to us, the Bible tells us, that he will lead us through difficulty, maybe for decades, maybe for our entire earthly lives, so that an eternal thing can be produced in you and I that is far greater than you and I could ever comprehend. Like, we need to get that. We need to really get this because it applies to every one of us in this room. Whatever challenge we're going through, from serious medical issues, and there are many of us facing those things, to dealing with chronic pain, to financial challenges, to relationship fractures, to suffering being hated, to just the difficulties of living as a parent and a spouse in a broken world with another person who's broken as your co-parent. In all of this, God is working a deeper, greater, eternally significant purpose. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 32 and 33 tell us the heart of God in doing this. It says, For though he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart 
to grieve the children of men. I want you to understand what that means, what, what, that, what that Hebrew poetry is bringing out to us. It's affirming, yes, God does cause grief. He leads us through difficult moments. We can never give in to the false idea that our God is a God who, who well, you know, he's in the good things, and then he kind of looks away or gets distracted or is dealing with something else, and that's when only the bad things show up. You know, Satan's just waiting for the moment, and difficulty's only there, and God would, you know, he would have stopped it, but he just, he was, he was distracted. So now he shows back up like an EMS team at a crash site, and he'll, he'll make some good, he'll fix it up. That's not what the Bible presents, right? As we talked about even last week, God's a good shepherd, a good shepherd who's always with his sheep, who is walking ahead of his sheep, who's leading his sheep into, into difficulties. He sees them coming first. And yet he leads us forward into those things and remains with us in the midst of them because he knows going through this will produce the best outcome in this person whom I love, and I love them enough to take them through it. So his heart, this text says, though he leads us through things that cause grief, this text says that is not his heart delighting in grief, delighting in afflictions and hardships. No, his heart is one of love for us so great, so deep, so fully committed to us that he will take us through that to form us and refine us so that we can get to the eternal result on the other side and all the beautiful things he has for us there. So here in, in 2022, Joni Erickson Tata, she's still a quadriplegic. God has never healed her the way he healed people in the Bible, like we saw in Acts 14 here. Even though God can, even though he has that power, even though she has prayed and many, many people have prayed for God to miraculously heal her, that has not been his providential plan. His providential plan has been to lead her through decades upon decades of this difficult providence so that she can speak to us and tell us of how faithful how beautiful, how caring, how compassionate, how loving God is, even to someone in the midst of all that suffering. There's tons of great content from her ministry, from videos and books, her biography, her blog articles that she writes. She's very open, she's very transparent about the struggles and the difficulties of living for 55 years now as a quadriplegic. But how she sees that God is doing something far greater in her something for an eternal good. And she can write that she's even thankful for this providence in her life. She knows that God is first and foremost working on her heart and her soul, and she cherishes that above everything else. Listen to these powerful words from her. For although my suffering has often felt overwhelming, it's been God's choicest tool in making me holy my affliction keeps purging sin and selfishness out of my heart, honing me into the picture-perfect bride. Heaven is the holy habitation where I'll be presented to Jesus, spotless and blameless. And my suffering is helping with that. Some don't quite believe me. They think I just want Jesus to come back so I can jump up out of my wheelchair and walk again. And although at one time that was true, decades of leaning on Jesus in my suffering have driven my longings for heaven deeper. A glorified body will be nice, but I want a pure heart. I want to be holy. My friends, the, the lesson that we can learn from observing her life and what God has led her through 
is something I deeply desire for God to give us the grace to learn without all that experience that she has had. To get this perspective, to hear these things shared, to grasp on to the, to the word of God as we have heard it today and then his work through a story like Joni Erickson Tata's story without us having to experience it. Because the reality is our lives are so fragile, right? Any of us could go out for a swim and have that happen to us. Any of us could get in a car to go home today and be in an accident that would radically change our lives forever in ways just like this. And God loves us enough that if that's what he knows would be best to teach you these lessons, to get you into the place that he wants you to be, that he would actually lead you through that. But God's grace is also so great that he's giving you and I an opportunity to learn these things and to begin to bring these things into our soul, into our hearts, without having to experience them firsthand. That's a gracious, gracious gift that I'm praying we will learn and take to heart. Coming back around again to Acts 14, we see a miracle of healing happen for that man. And God does it for a purpose. We'll explore that more next week. We'll come back to this text. But friends, my heart is really heavy today to communicate this as clearly as I can. God not only heals for divine purposes, but he also withholds healings, leads us through challenges and refines us in difficulties and afflictions, all for divine purposes too. If I could put it another way, a way that applies to each of us in here, you need to understand this morning, our circumstances do not determine God's love for us. Don't, don't fall into that trap. That's what the enemy wants to tell you. When you face a difficult moment, when you face a hardship, when there's affliction, when there's trials, when things are really dark and difficult, he wants to say, see, if God loved you, he wouldn't have brought you here to this moment. No, that's a lie. Your circumstance does not determine God's love for you. And the most clear way to combat that is not to look to your own experiences or to the experience of someone like Joni Erickson Tata. It's to look to the experience of Jesus. Because the most difficult, the most painful, the darkest, most crushing circumstance in all of history is the circumstance that we are to fix our gaze upon to see God's love most perfectly, clearly, brilliantly shown to us. Romans 5.8 tells us, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's the death of the Son of God and everything that took place leading up to that moment that shows us most clearly God does love us. He would take Jesus through the valley of the shadow of death to death on the cross itself to prove to us he does love us. And your circumstances, your difficulties, your suffering in this life doesn't change that. His perfect love for the Son remained while he hung on the cross. And his perfect love for you remains while you go through any circumstance of difficulty here. This is why I say, it's why we put out on things, the gospel changes everything. Right? It's, a, it's a nice slogan, it's a nice phrase to utter, but it's not a cliche. When you understand the gospel, the suffering that Jesus endured, the price that he paid, it changes how we live and how we view things in this life. When you don't, when you live like so many of us do, myself included, and we forget Jesus, we forget the gospel, we focus on the circumstance we are in, that's when we despair. That's when we get anxious. That's when depression sets in. When we're looking around instead of looking up to him. 
But when you get the gospel, when you understand the depths of what Jesus has done, what he endured, the love of the Father shown through all of that, that's where we have this unexplainable peace. We have this strength to endure. We have the perspective to say, okay, Lord, this is hard. I want out naturally, but I'm willing to stay in to learn the lesson, to be formed in the ways that you would have me to be formed for all of eternity. The gospel really does change things like that. When you realize that it's sin that sent Jesus to that cross, it changes how we relate to our sin. This is why so many of us struggle so much to overcome sin in our lives, because we're not thinking properly about the gospel. That's what it comes down to. When you see your Savior bloodied and bruised, hanging on a cross, dying because of your sin, you can't love that sin anymore. But because we don't look to him in the midst of our sins, because we look to the pleasures we get from the sins, the struggle we think it'll be to overcome the sins, because we get caught up in our circumstances and we don't look to Jesus, that's why we don't mortify our sins. That's why we don't fight as hard as we should. That's why we don't want to engage with dealing with sin the way Jesus tells us to, because we're ignoring the gospel. We just let it go for a few minutes. But if you grasp the gospel and you look at the cross moment by moment, it changes everything. So my longing this morning is that those of us who who profess his name, who who we believe in him, we, we trust in him, right? My prayer for you and I is that we would begin to kind of push through those clouds that obscure the view of the gospel and who Jesus is. And we will begin to focus on seeing his hand at work in our lives here and now. Asking the question, as difficult as this may be, Lord, what do you want me to learn? What do you want to teach me here? And my sincere prayer is that anyone who's not trusting in him, who's not genuinely believing Jesus is who he says he is, the one scriptures reveal him to be, that he's done all the word declares he has done, that, that you would begin to rely fully on Jesus as your Savior then you'd be drawn to him today and respond to him and his work of love in your life. Worship team, if you'll come to lead us in a a final song as we take a few moments to to respond this morning and to ask the Lord to work in us. Like I said, I know we're we're just leaving it hanging in this narrative that has many other things to teach us, and we'll get there next week. But today, I just want us to hear, no matter how difficult the circumstances no matter how dark the providence, no matter the the struggles we may be facing, God has led you there as a good shepherd for a purpose. And I want to challenge you, I want to implore you, I want to beg you today to look for it. To look, how does this take me more towards Jesus? How does this make me rely on Jesus more? What is he teaching me? What is he doing in me through this? He has a good purpose to work eternally significant things out in our lives through what we endure in what is truly, in the grand scheme of things, these light and momentary afflictions. May we have eyes to see that and hearts willing to respond to those things. Let's take a few minutes to sing, to pray. The altars are open if you want to come for that any need. But don't rush out of here without taking a few moments to let the Lord work on you this morning.